My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shade. provoke screams through screens as audiences stream horror movies on Netflix, children cast spells on opponents in grand matches within virtual reality, and superstitious sports fans don color-coded uniforms to add luck to their champion's odds in modern-day coliseum clashes. Can you feel the magic in the air? I bet you can in small-town America where the zombie drone and death tones have yet to fully corrupt the sanctity of spirited summer nights. The occult menagerie of symbolic spectacle is not absent here either, for America's oldest tributary is bubbling with mysticism. Ancient indigenous traditions offered up on the alchemist's Bunsen burner, a funeral pyre atop bloody ground, sacred mounds become manicured parks and the once managed natural world tumbles out of harmony as science and industry tighten its locked grip on society. America, despite what patriotic dogmatists will tell you, was never a Christian nation. And here to demonstrate this truth is author Ronnie Pontiac with his monumental and comprehensive history of American metaphysical religion. Ronnie is a writer, documentarian, and author who worked as Manly P. Hall's research assistant, screener, and substitute lecturer for seven years. Ronnie has a band with his wife named Lucid Nation, and he joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to discuss his time spent with Manly P. Hall and his new book, American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of of the new world. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and enjoy this conversation with Ronnie Pontiac. When John Winthrop the Younger is out there, he's not only examining European alchemy, he wants to know what kind of herbs are being used by the tribes. He wants to know what the Jamaican woman knows that she's brought from Africa originally, a tradition that, that, that wound up in Jamaica but originated in Africa. He is looking at different sources of wisdom in a way that, that perhaps Paracelsus did, but very few Europeans would, crossing over racial boundaries. And this, I think, is characteristic of, of the esoteric tradition. If you, if you look at Father CRC and the fiasco of Rosicrucianism, 
You've got the influence very clearly of Arabian scholars and, and, and people who were in Egypt when CRC was said to first have gone there. And whether there was a CRC or not, and we can debate that, the influence on the people who created that mythos is clear. And so I think that in the esoteric tradition, and, and you see this in America in particular, there's an openness to finding wisdom wherever you can and to recognizing similarities. And the viewpoint, I think, is is different. It, it's not that we have the truth and you have a heresy or a lie. It is everyone has the truth, but it's very hard for us to, to identify it because all those different truths are being told through images and words that are the accidents of time and place. So because you live in this kind of an environment, because your language works this way, you see this mystery in your way and somebody else living in very different circumstances sees it in a different way. And whereas in the past, even among Christians, this was a reason for slaughter and torture and, and, and war, among esotericists, it seems to me, this is welcomed. I want you to explain to me how you view this, because I want to know that. And I'll be willing to share with you how I see it. Let's find the common ground. And doesn't it make sense that we're, we're all human beings with souls and we're all having the same experiences? We're just describing them differently. So over here, a horned god may be a really good thing because we love cows and goats and it means plenty to us and we, we are an agricultural people, but over there a horned god is a very bad thing. So that difference, it's, it's, a, it's like playing 3D or 4D in a sense. And I don't think that, that the world has made that jump. I think esotericists have been trying to create that quantum leap in humanity for centuries to try to get people to see this is all our spiritual heritage. Overall, you know, here we are in this mess of America, sitting in the blood of so many nations. It's all our heritage in a sense. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are. Welcome back to the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. And with me for the first time is a spectacular guest who I'm very excited to speak to. He's a gentleman named Ronnie Pontiac. He's written a fantastic new book called American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World. He also spent many years working intimately with Manly Palmer Hall, which many listeners of this show I'm sure are aware of, his many, many, many books. But Ronnie, it's truly a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Excellent. So this is the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and given the title of the show, I have to ask you right from the beginning, does your family think you're crazy for the life you've led and all the things you've accomplished? I don't really have much family left, but they always thought I was crazy. <laughs> so I assume that they would probably still think so. Okay. Well, yeah, it, it feels like you're right at home here then. Definitely. <laughs> well, 
Tell the audience, if you will, how this journey got started for you. Obviously, you worked with Manly Hall, but what first led you into the Philosophical Research Society and and getting into his work and, and becoming a part of this? I had always had an interest in the darker side of magic. I was a very alienated kid who essentially had no social contract and had slid into criminal activity as a teen, I was violent and I had a very violent band. I was a lead singer and I fortunately fell in love. And I had long ago seen as a kid, a copy of a book about Atlantis. It was a big oversized book. I was a terrible thief and I wanted to steal it, but it was just too big to shoplift. And my birthday came around and I got some birthday money and I took it to the Bodhi Tree Bookstore, which was an amazing place in Los Angeles at one time, like this headquarters for metaphysics is the internet in a sense for metaphysics at that time. And I was hoping to find a copy of it, but instead I found a very old edition of the secret teachings of all ages. It was the sixth edition, which was the sort of reduced size black and white version, but it was still this big tome. And I just thought it was the most great looking book I'd ever seen. And I assumed that the author was dead because he looked sort of like an old Hollywood actor in the photo. And the book was from something like 1928 or the early 30s. But I mentioned it to a friend and she told me that he was still lecturing not far from where I lived. I was stunned and I actually didn't go see him for quite some time because I was just very intimidated being who I had been to go into the presence of this person that I had so much admiration for because the book changed my life. I, I would sit there and read a chapter every day and then tell my girlfriend all about it. And it just seemed like my, my brain was being expanded over this period of time by this one book. And here was the opportunity to actually meet him potentially. So I hesitated for a long time. So I thought he would look right through me and that I was not the kind of person that they would want at the Philosophical Research Society. But eventually I gathered my courage and my girlfriend prevailed on me that while we still had a chance, because he was already hitting his 80s, that we should go down there and hear him. So we did. And he did something to me that he did to many people I later found out. I happened to, at the time, the same friend who told me that he was still lecturing was a person that was getting ready to move to Virginia Beach because of Edgar Cayce's prophecies of imminent earth changes. And I was consumed with this feeling that I had to get out of L.A. and get to Virginia Beach because there were going to be these earth changes. And he looked right at me and he said he talked about irrational fears of earthquakes caused by guilt. And I, I was stunned to have him look straight at me and address my phobia and then tell me why I had it. And it was a very reason that I had hesitated to come there and listen to him. I later found out that many people had this experience. And even more interestingly, I later found out that, that he couldn't really see us. He had very bad vision by that time. And he basically saw colorful blurs out in the audience. And yet somehow had this ability to look at people in certain parts of his lectures and deliver personal messages, what amounted to life-changing personal messages. That was an extraordinary thing about him. So I was so impressed by his lecture and by the, the quality of the people there. They were mostly older people, but they were so civilized. And the conversations that I heard going on around us were so fascinating. I heard words for the first time that I've never heard before. 
and about things like theosophy or the name Blavatsky or chakras or any number of things, because people were interested in a plethora of different subjects who were involved at Philosophical Research Society. Then there was a beautiful library with so many incredible volumes. I didn't know what any of them were, but they all just had this sense of presence around them that I found magnetic. So my girlfriend and I decided to volunteer there. And they wanted her because she had office skills, but they had no use for me. I'd volunteered to do janitorial work, anything. And they said, we really don't need anyone. But because I had been raised in a family that had spoken many languages, German, Russian, Polish, French, and I mentioned that in the interview, I received a phone call the next day. And I was told that I should show up the next morning to meet Manley Hall. He wanted to speak to me about something. Well, I was stunned once again. And so I went down there and they led me to the door to his office and they opened it. He was sitting there smiling and there was a phalanx of these old women around him who ran the place. They were all glaring at me. He was smiling and he did a great see Fields accent. He says, sit down and make yourself miserable. He sat down and he slid this pile of paper in front of me. And he said, this is the galley of my alchemical bibliography. I did not know what a galley was, what alchemy was, or what a bibliography was. I had no idea why he was putting this thing in front of me. And he said, I understand that you can speak various languages. And I said, yeah, I know my way around them. Can you read them with a dictionary? Probably. Well, I want you to edit this for me. I have fired the editor and I need someone to finish it. And I will watch your work and guide you through the process. Well, it was an incredible offer. I mean, just amazing, but I just thought it was ridiculous. I mean, I was uneducated. I had I just no way I could take on this academic task. So he handed it to me. I carried it out of the office. And the minute I got out of the office, the VP of the place, Pat Irvin, this wonderful woman, she just grabbed it out of my arms and said, you know, that was a mistake. I actually thanked her because I thought she was right. And it was a mistake. I got home. There was a call that afternoon. You in Manley Hall's office tomorrow at 9 a.m. Okay. I come back at 9 a.m. There's nobody there but him. Sits me down and he says, from now on, you listen to only me. Anybody says anything else to you, you come and tell me. You are going to do this. You're capable of it. I will help you do it. Every day in the morning, I will assign your task and then we'll go over it in the afternoon and you'll learn your way around this. And in the meantime, we can have lunch in the vault and we can go over these different alchemical manuscripts and I can tell you things about them. Mark, I don't know what karma or what, I mean, wow. it was incredible. I'd see, you know, I get chills even now when I tell the story. Mm. And I want to recommend, by the way, Tamara Lucid, my girlfriend at the time and now my wife, wrote a really beautiful book about our friendship with the Halls, with Marie and with Manley. And she does tell these stories much better than I have. The book is called Making the Ordinary Extraordinary, My Seven Years in a Cult Los Angeles with Manly Palmer Hall. Mm, she yeah. worked with him as well as a screener, and you know, they were good friends, actually. Oh. We were friends also, but I was more his assistant. And I eventually became sort of his right-hand assistant in the sense that not only was I working on the alchemical biblio, but 
I would go fetch books for him when he wanted them. I would I would help him get stuff out of bookstores and, and look for books for him at bookstores. I was uh, hired to go around the library and pick out items that needed to be put in the vault because no one had checked for decades if these books were too valuable to be so easily stolen. And indeed, many of them were and were moved into the vault. I became somebody that he relied on for just all kinds of mixed style assistant work, you know, and I also became his designated substitute lecturer and his screener. He was the one who got me started lecturing. He suggested that I should try it. Actually, his librarian, Pearl Thomas, started the whole thing. But when I talked to him about it, he encouraged me and told me that, that if I did well, that, that I could be his, his designated substitute. And I did become that. I did well enough to do that. And as a screener, I answered letters for him. I met people who wanted to meet with him. And I really had to, including working with my wife on this, decide who got through to him because he got so many requests and so many of them were really strange. There were photographers who wanted to photograph him naked and people who, who just had really psychological issues that they thought he could solve, but they really needed to get psychological help. It was not the kind of situation that he could deal with. Although I saw him take on many situations with people that were very distressed from taking wrong steps, if you will, in their spiritual paths or suffering from the dark night of the soul. And he gave incredible advice to people. But occasionally you would run across people who were so disturbed that they were potentially dangerous. And uh, we actually warned him about the guy who may or may not have murdered him. I, I, he was a very, to me, he was a very scary character, actually. And, mm -hmm. and my wife warned him in the strongest terms about this guy. But we were actually asked to leave. He explained to me that the place was winding down. He was getting ready to pass over. All the people that, that we knew there that we loved were getting ready to leave. And he didn't want us, we were kids. And he didn't want us to be around that. And somehow also his fate was closing in on him. And the person of this guy kind of took over as his medical assistant, his assistant in everything, really, at a level that was far beyond anything that I had ever been involved with him with. So that's, that's how I got involved. And that's also how I got involved in writing this book, because I found books in the library. In fact, in the vault, the real beginning of the book, undoubtedly, is when I found this big tome and I would go in early before we had lunch to pick out what we would talk about. Often it was things that we were working on in the alchemical bibliography, but he would also let me just pick out anything and ask him questions about it. So there was this big tome. I opened it up and it's a newspaper and it's called The Platonist. And it's published in St. Louis at the time of the gunfight at the OK Corral. And I, I just couldn't wrap my imagination around how or why somebody would create a newspaper called The Platonist at that time in that place, especially because it was filled with Thomas Taylor translations of Plotinus and Proclus with translations by Abner Doubleday of um, Eliphas Levi, really esoteric stuff. And so I I it, it went against everything that I thought about America, in a sense. It, it didn't make sense that that was going on. And to my surprise, Mr. Hall didn't know much about it either. 
He didn't know much about who the editor Thomas Johnson was. He knew some things about Alexander Wilder, who was somebody who wrote for it often and was very involved in the Platonist. But he didn't know a whole lot about him either. And I had run into Alexander Wilder in the library, and I found him, what little I could find, fascinating. So I started going around to local colleges and universities looking for information about the Platonists and about these people. And at first was unable to find anything. And it started me on a quest that went on. It's still going on. I never gave up on it. When I was out touring as a musician, I'd go to bookstores and if we were near a good library and just look for things I was looking for, trying to solve these mysteries. Because it was one after another. You'd solve a little bit of it and then suddenly something, another door would open and you would be shocked again at something about America that you had never been told that reflected a very different personality or perhaps even destiny for the country. And to me, that book is, is really a collection of those. It's all those mysteries that I had been chasing down. But it's also a picture of America that has been undoubtedly purposely neglected. I don't think it was in a sense like people set out to suppress the metaphysical as such. Because as you can see from the book in the beginning, they were all metaphysicians. They were all doing astrology and alchemy. But at the same time, there was uh, when Christianity really exploded in America and you had the great revival, there was an effort to, to say, well, we got to get all this alchemy stuff out of Harvard College and out of Yale. And we've got to we got to clean this up and make it a Christian nation the way it was meant to be. And in the process of time, it was forgotten that this was a reaction to the fact that America was not a very Christian nation in the beginning. That even, as you know, the son of the found, you know, the first governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, the Puritan of Puritans, was a guy who had John D's Monus Hieroglyphicus written on his alchemical equipment as it was shipped to America. Mm -hmm. Was chasing Rosicrucians in Europe. <laughs> and was an astrologer and, and an incredible healer using Paracelsian medicine and, and his other amazing skills. So, and even you, you you noted in the book that at the time of the you know founding of this country, quote unquote, seventeen seventy six, only fifteen percent of Americans at that time were actually active in a church. So yeah, you you really make a great case for this throughout the book. And I know this might alarm people who were raised with this sort of traditionalist Christian identity of America. And I mean, I can even recognize it in my own family, bringing these certain topics up and hearing things like, well, this is a Christian nation. And it's like, well, you clearly haven't looked at your history. And I really applaud your efforts, sir, because this book, you know, you you really, I mean, trace the, the, the whole scheme sort of zeitgeist in a really beautiful way. And I love how you open with Turtle Island and this chapter about Turtle Island. You know, obviously after the f sort of introductory chapters, you start off by explaining some of the metaphysical aspects that were predominant throughout Native American culture amongst most of the tribes, if not all of them. And that was a big part of my girlfriend and I's journey into this subject, noticing these tremendous stone structures throughout New England that for the most part have been ignored by archaeologists, stone chambers that are aligned not only to the stars, but aligned to other stone chambers hundreds of miles away. 
on a on a track that makes you think well they must have been mapping this out so there are so many things that the native americans were doing that have been neglected by historians and you do make the point that a lot of what we learned about the native americans came from european authors who for the most part were biased there are some exceptions and you you note roger williams as an exception he's essentially the founder of the the state of rhode island what was then the colony of Providence. And yeah, I I don't know if we would have as many Native Americans living here in New England as we do now, if it weren't for men like John Winthrop the Younger, Roger Williams, and even Thomas Morton, who who Mm -hmm. spend a chapter talking about the pagan pilgrim, which I found that really fascinating, not only because of the actions of, of Thomas, but the naming. He named this place Marymount, And my friend Stephen has been doing a lot of research into some parapolitics that connect to the metaphysical realm. And he's found an overwhelming pattern with towns or cities or counties named Mary Mount or Marietta, right? There's this sort Mm -hmm. of toponomical magic involved there. And you even state how important names were to the Native Americans. So before I ramble on too much further... Where did Turtle Island and that research begin? I mean, when you're looking through, obviously, this, you know, rare collection of books, did Manley Palmer Hall have books about the Native Americans or, or books dealing with these sort of subjects like the Walla Molum or, or maybe even Cherokee writings? I mean, what, what was the extent of the information that was available to you for, for creating this Turtle Island chapter? In the beginning at PRS, yes, he had some amazing resources and also would meet with native chiefs, indigenous chiefs and uh, leaders in in the spiritual side of of particular tribes, as opposed to, say, new age personalities. So his example was of someone who was fascinated with spirituality and with truth in all cultures. And and in art as well as in writing and in objects and in all the different ways that that spirituality is passed on. So his example was very inspiring to me, and it, it definitely has left me with a lifelong interest in all cultures. The Turtle Island chapter was informed by a lot of new research that wasn't available to him, and in part, I was very lucky because the late John Trudell was a friend. And John Trudell is a really amazing poet activist. If you or any of your listeners don't know who he is, Google him. He's a wonderful, he was a wonderful human being, very, very good to know about. And, and he dealt a lot with a sort of macro view of history. He felt that, that indigenous culture was where a healthier way of life was being preserved and had existed and was proof of such. And he believed that, to use his words, that there was a sort of industrial elite that had always existed, even when industry was very primitive, and had been pushing the idea and and the profits of progress in order to enrich themselves and in order to gain power. And and you can see glimpses of this state of mind 
when, for instance, Harriot is writing about about America and he's he's seeing everything in America as potential product and and ways for investors to get back their money. It's no different from a modern corporation. His first book describing Virginia is a catalog of exploit exploitation, really promises of, of unbelievable wealth. Right. And it was very common to feel that the indigenous people were wasting those resources, that, that they were reprehensible because they had been given such bounty by God and they hadn't done anything with it. Mm. Now, one of the things that I loved about Harriot was that he went a step further, however, and he speculated that maybe the, the Indians, the, the indigenous people had a better chance of a, a better definition, let's say, of of what wealth is than Europeans had. He pointed out that they didn't have to build big walls and have guns to protect their stuff, that they owned everything in common and that the way that they treated each other was respectful and kind and they were able to avoid a lot of violence. Their wars, their battles were much less violent than European battles. And so he was able to, unlike most Europeans, look a little bit beyond his own context and see that that actually the natives might be living a, a life that was superior in some ways to what the Europeans were doing. But he never hesitated. He never hesitated to go back to London and tell everybody that they needed to spend money to come out here and grab all these trees and all the fish and all the furs. And right. he didn't get that far. Right. This is um, why he's he's known in your book as America's first evil genius, which to me <laughs> conjured up images of a guy in a, a laboratory. And we do get to figures like that later on. But uh, it is interesting to to think about Harriot in this position of like the first corporatist in the in the Americas in a way. I mean, all of the colonies were essentially companies. I mean, yes. they evolved into what became modern day corporations. So yeah, this was sort of the mindset at the time. And it even went into, you wrote about Winthrop saying, you know, oh, the the fact that the Native Americans haven't taken advantage of this tremendous amount of resources is, you know, indication that they're not capable of managing it and justification for us to own it all. And this became, you know, the difference between the civil and the savage, right? This sort of mm -hmm. political justification that the English came in with and Lawyers like Thomas Morton, you know, made mm -hmm. all these deals with the natives and, and essentially took all the property rights from a people who, mm -hmm. who didn't really have the, the emphasis on property that they did. So it was, a, it was a clash, you know, worlds colliding, as you put it. There's a paragraph in the book where we talk about the, the, how the definitions of natural and artificial have evolved. Mm -hmm. And in those times among Europeans, the word natural was was an insult. It meant it was rude and undeveloped and vulgar, whereas artificial meant that it had been improved by human artifice. And today, of course, we have the opposite definitions. We prefer natural and we find artificial to be tainted or even toxic. Mm. But it's interesting that that especially among the Puritans, and I think this is captured in the Turtle Island chapter, there's a there's a almost a living on the edge of a panic 
living in this wilderness that extends thousands of miles to the West that no one's ever seen. It's filled with these tribes that all speak different languages and whose practices are frightening to many of the Europeans. But what we see is that the, actually the behavior of many of these early colonists was far more savage. And in fact, taught savagery to the natives who would later be called savage for doing these things because the, Pilgrims had been somewhat whitewashed by historians. And by the time you're getting into the 1800s, people aren't remembering that the Indians, indigenous people learned to scalp from white people, from traders. And so we also see, I think, a profound influence. So to go to a little bit more inspiring aspect of this, that the traders had been coming into Europe for over 100 years before there were any colonies going on. They were interacting already and, and teaching. And one of the things that, that I found among all the wonderful moments that, that made it into the book and some that didn't was that when the first encounter occurred between English and, and Native Americans, they were addressed in English and they were stunned because they didn't realize that they'd been taught by traders. This right. indigenous man comes walking out of the woods and addresses them in English. This was in the Chesapeake Bay region, correct? Which was yes. fascinating for me because a lot of what we've been researching over here includes my friend Michael Wan, who calls himself the Susquehanna alchemist because of his mm -hmm. research into the Susquehanna River, which is essentially the same body of water as the Chesapeake Bay. And when I read that part of your book, I sent it to him and I said, hey, maybe this gentleman dressed speaking English, maybe he's a Susquehannock because we're told that the Susquehannock had potentially been connected to the Europeans, as you said, much earlier than we're, we're expected when we look at the story of discovery, right? You know, these, mm -hmm. you know, official people coming over and saying, yes, we claimed it. There had been hundreds of thousands of people going there, you know, for maybe even more than a hundred. I mean, you, know, you said a hundred years, yeah. but I mean, who knows? There's so much that's coming out that says maybe even, you know, they've been traveling as far back as BC, you know, across the mm -hmm. Pacific and Atlantic Ocean to the Americas. But either way, you know, you, you do make a great case for the natives and their impact on American culture, for the most part, being left out and altered in that 1800s period, as you just said. I mean, even the founding fathers were inspired by the Iroquois League of Five Nations, Hudunowase. And uh, yeah, they, you know, for the most part nowadays, people are, are like, oh yeah, the Native Americans, you know, they didn't do much. But they actually informed many of the political ideas that went into creating the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, you know? So this is all very important. I think needs to, to be, people need to be reminded of this, especially mm -hmm. in light of what happened in 2019 with the Lakota and the, the protests over there uh, and people being, you know, sprayed with hoses for, you know, standing up for their land, you know? That was another of the sources for the Turtle Island section. My wife was an associate producer on a documentary called End of the Line, The Women of Standing Rock, mm. which was about the women who led the protest. Right. And through that, we were able to get 
contact with all sorts of elders. And that helped me talk to people rather than rely on books right. to try to get some, some points of view from elders themselves, as opposed to being completely reliant on academics. And in this book, I did choose for the most part to go with whatever the current academic point of view was because it's changed so much. And part of the purpose of this book is to share with people this revolution that has occurred in academia that opened up all this information. It's, a, it's really amazing how much the, the viewpoint has changed in just the last 20 years. And there's an absolute avalanche of material that's been released looking at subjects that used to only be the province of rogue scholars like Blavatsky or Manley Hall or Godfrey Higgins or people of, of that kind of outsider academic status. But today there are academics who are exploring materials that have never been looked at before and greatly changing the narratives. And I do think that as we begin to study more deeply, we'll, we'll be able to see, I think you can see even in this book, the way that indigenous culture has, has carried through in profound ways as America, in a sense, deals with its guilt about what it did in stealing this country and decimating its population. And so, for example, when the spiritualist revolution occurs, which is kind of a, it really is sociologically women seizing power in the only way that they could by channeling male spirits, a woman who was not allowed to speak in a room with men could dominate an auditorium full of them and tell them what they were doing wrong and be listened to. But many of those women had guides that were personified as indigenous chiefs or indigenous women or indigenous men. It's amazing how many of them, you know, a very high percentage. And so much of American spiritualism was wrapped up in these naive ideas about indigenous people. But yet America was there coming to grips with owing some kind of, of understanding and respect to the people that they had really dismissed and, and completely exploited and decimated. And I think that even in the beginning, you see influence going on, as you said, dramatically in the case of, of, the, of the Iroquois and the founding fathers. But I think also you can see it in the way that there are modifications in, in well, let's, let's take a look at alchemy, for example. So when John Winthrop the Younger is out there, he's not only examining European alchemy, he wants to know what kind of herbs are being used by the tribes. He wants to know what the Jamaican woman has, is, knows that she's brought from Africa originally, a tradition that, that, that wound up in Jamaica, but originated in Africa. He is looking at different sources of wisdom in a way that, that perhaps Paracelsus did but very few Europeans would, crossing over racial boundaries. And this, I think, is characteristic of, of the esoteric tradition. If you, if you look at Father CRC and the Rosicrucian, the whole fiasco, the wonderful fiasco of Rosicrucianism, you've got the influence very clearly of Arabian scholars and, and, and people who were in Egypt when CRC was said to first have gone there. And whether there was a CRC or not, and we can debate that, the influence on the people who created that mythos is clear. Mm. And so 
I think that in the esoteric tradition, and, and you see this in America in particular, there's an openness to finding wisdom wherever you can and to recognizing similarities. And the viewpoint, I think, is is different. It, it's not that we have the truth and you have a heresy or a lie. It is everyone has the truth, but it's very hard for us to, to identify it because all those different truths are being told through images and words that are the accidents of time and place. So because you live in this kind of an environment, because your language works this way, you see this mystery in your way and somebody else living in very different circumstances sees it in a different way. And whereas in the past, even among Christians, this was a reason for slaughter and torture and, and, and war. Among esotericists, it seems to me, this is welcomed. I want you to explain to me how you view this, because I want to know that. And I'll be willing to share with you how I see it. Let's find the common ground. And doesn't it make sense that we're, we're all human beings with souls and we're all having the same experiences? We're just describing them differently. So over here, a horned God may be a really good thing because we love cows and goats and it means plenty to us. And we, we are an agricultural people, but over there, a horned God is a very bad thing. Mm. So that difference, it's, it's, a, it's like playing 3D or 4D in a sense. And I don't think that, that the world has made that jump. I think esotericists have been trying to create that quantum leap in humanity for centuries to try to get people to see this is all our spiritual heritage. Right. There are the problems of appropriation and, and such, but, but overall, you know, here we are in this mess of America sitting in the blood of so many nations. It's all our heritage in a sense. Now, it may not be right for us to go out there and declare ourselves Lakota chiefs or, or shamans, but we can certainly study what these people do. We can, we can learn from them. We can be respectful to their traditions and, and we can improve our lives and maybe even potentially theirs by sharing that information. Hmm. Now, this takes us all the way back to Comenius, right? Since we're talking about John Winthrop the Younger and his idea of the College of Light, that we should gather from all around the world people who have these interests and they should all be able to study together and they should they should revolutionize humanity finally by instead of building weapons and being concerned about about borders finding all the knowledge that is possible to find among like-minded people absolutely yeah and we see the the native americans right there in that 4d world you know and and I've been blessed to have had uh, native elders who have been kind enough to, to join me on this podcast very recently, actually, around the same time I started reading this book. But about 10 years ago, I met a gentleman from Arizona, Navajo, who came all the way out to Connecticut to pray for Geronimo's spirit, Geronimo, whose skull and femur bones are allegedly inside of Yale University. And, and he taught me many things that kind of led me on my own path of understanding and, and seeking. But uh, yeah, this, this is something that 
he basically expressed to before me you go on go um, would you want to hear what you have to say about but because of what you just said the skull and crossbones society and mm-hmm. and having geronimo's bones i mean it's it's downright evil but but still there's the influence right that, that this dreaded society's symbol is actually related to an indigenous rebel rebellion absolutely well, and you make the point in the book that, you know, a hundred years before the 1776 American, you know, revolution, I mean, obviously it had started years before that, there was the native revolution, right? King Philip's War, as the Europeans remembered it, really it was Metacomet who was a leader amongst the, the I believe, the Wepawags or, or maybe mm-hmm. a different tribe. But he's got his name remembered on several mountains nearby. The Metacomet Ridge is named after him in my home state. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it's fascinating. You know, back to, to what I was saying about Amos, my friend, he, he expressed this to me very plainly. He said, Mark, you're born of the same soil that I was, you know, we were all born of this soil. He's like, you need to learn this stuff. If your heart wants you to learn this stuff, learn it, you know, and that was all I needed to hear. And I've been off to the races since never claimed to be a shaman or anything like that, but I've been very grateful to receive the, the wisdom that's come to me. And, and I do see the same in, in your journey. And, and this is, I mean, this is huge because around that same time I met Amos, I found the secret teachings of all ages, you know, in my own life, it, it appeared and uh, definitely made a big impact on what I would study next. And that's one thing that I do want to ask, you know, concerning this time period, I have a book right here that I believe Mitch Horowitz put together, but it was based on certain articles written and essays written by Manley P. Hall. And I'm curious, you know, some of those essays don't have many sources. Is there a reason why was Manley limited in his sources? Was it because these were oral traditions he was learning and there just wasn't a a written source to cite? That's a good question. I believe that a good deal of the content in that book came from journal articles, and he was less likely to include footnotes and sources in the journal articles because he he perceived the journal as being something of a, a, a community newsletter, if you will. And so he would tell these interesting stories and, and share them with people, but it wasn't something that he was doing to try to make a point academically. Right. On top of that, he also came from a tradition, as did Blavatsky, where they were kind of fast and loose with footnotes and, and such. And they would, in fact, and I do believe he did this as well, they would even plagiarize whole paragraphs out of other writers that were obscure, not because they were they were taking advantage of them, but because they wanted to share that wisdom. And they figured, I'm not going to spend several paragraphs explaining who this obscure person was, because that doesn't really matter. I just want to take this important wisdom and share it. Right. Of course, we wouldn't do that today. But at that time, that was very common because, for one thing, access to the books wasn't as easy as it is now on the Internet. So if you had access to these rare books, in a sense, that's what The Secret Teachings is. It's a huge compendium of books that you and I would never own, but that he had access to. So he wanted to share as much of that as he possibly could. And I think his whole career was was like that. He wanted to share the wonderful things that he discovered 
as he studied the world. He loved finding beautiful new ideas or, or art or pieces of history. He, he just got a kick out of it, a thrill, and he would share that with people knowing that they too would get it. And so I think that, that there, that those are the reasons that he didn't do a lot of footnote stuff. And I think that there was also not a lot of research for him to, to base his work on. Academia had really, there was a time when academia thought that, that for instance, looking at evangelical Christians was radical because they were not an established institution. You would have to look at the Catholics. You would have to look at the Protestants. But the evangelicals, that was crazy fringe stuff. Well, that's obviously untrue. I mean, they've been hugely important and influential in American history. But those are the kinds of prejudices that were in academia for generations. So first, there wasn't a lot of good material for him. And most of what he was basing his work on was much earlier research by people like A.E. Waite, who was a relatively good scholar in comparison to some of the other stuff like John Hayden and others who were much more creative, let's say. It's not even creative. It's the definitions are so blurry about a lot of this stuff. When somebody comes along and they say, these are the Rosicrucian teachings. Do they mean that I met a Rosicrucian initiate who told me the inner teachings of the sanctum? Or do they mean that these teachings make sense to me, given what the Rosicrucians say about themselves and what people I know who are interested in this are discussing? And there are other definitions we can get into, but it, it's, it becomes fuzzy. So somebody releases a book saying the Rosic called the Rosicrucians Uncovered. And it purports to be the the whole history of the the order and what their prayers are like. But the reality is that in the same book, he admits that he never met a Rosicrucian. Now, this opens us up to, well, of course, he said that because he was a Rosicrucian, but he couldn't admit that he was a Rosicrucian. And in fact, Mr. Hall does play with that area in some of his work where he'll say, well, Flood and Meyer said they were not Rosicrucians, but... Maybe they were anyway, because they had to say that. Right. I talked to him about this later in life because so I took a real long dive and embarrassing dive into Rosicrucian initiate fever in the early days of, of working for him. But Tamara, my wife, records in, in gruesome detail in her book, humorous, but, but embarrassing detail. And... When I talked to him about it, he said that in his early days, he was very swept up in theosophy and in sort of Madame Blavatsky's viewpoint on masters. And so he would lecture about invisibility or about their ability to manifest material objects the way that the Mahatmas were said to have been able to do. But later in life, he stopped emphasizing that aspect of it. And he began in his last book about the Rosicrucians. In fact, he really redefines it. It's called Magister Schlegel. I think it's called the Rosicrucians and Magister Schlegel, something like that. Very obscure. But in there, he actually says that he thinks that the Rosicrucians were just people who were trying to make a better world, that they were, they were good people who devoted themselves to helping others and to furthering knowledge and for furthering knowledge of nature. And so from that point of view, I'm actually working on a book right now about this. From that point of view, John Winthrop the Younger, who went looking for Rosicrucians but never found them, 
is the Rosicrucian. Not because he was in some secret order or because he was initiated or because he lived according to their ideals. He learned to heal people. He healed people for free where he could. He tried to protect the innocent. He would meet with other people and try to gather them together to further knowledge. He, he applied the principles that the Rosicrucians had, had publicized in his own life. And so the later Manley Hall thought, well, to me, John Winthrop the Younger is a Rosicrucian. He devoted his life to the Rosicrucian principles. I don't need to believe that there is an invisible master that no one knows about who's the actual the Rosicrucian. I can believe that in every generation there are people like this. And to me, they are Rosicrucians, even if they are not practicing the methods and the, the, the beliefs of the Rosy Cross. They can still be described as Rosicrucians because their life of devotion, the same sense that they might be called a Mahatma or they, they might be called a Bodhisattva. Mm. Very interesting point of view. Well, it, uh, it mirrors in a way the sort of path of, of a shaman in some cultures where, you know, you sort of expect a certain child of any given generation to exhibit those characteristics that would then put them on the path to maybe changing their name and then becoming that, you know, role mm -hmm. within the tribe. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. You know, a modern analogy would probably be like an active role-playing game or an alternative role-playing game, ARG, whatever that acronym stands for. And I've heard people summarize Rosicrucianism in that way, saying, oh, it was just a live-action role-play. They were just role-playing. And I think that kind of mutes the potency of what these people actually did, because in, in their minds, the Universal College or the Invisible College was a real thing that, I mean, essentially wouldn't have come to fruition in the way it, that it has today with our modern universities without men like that. I mean, John mm -hmm. Winthrop's College of Light became Yale University, which started in his colony, mm -hmm. the Saybrook mm -hmm. Colony. I mean, they, they didn't build a, a very many schools there. They eventually mm -hmm. planted themselves in New Haven. But yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see these alt interests, these intelligentsiers, you know, having such an impact on what we would now think of as kind of dry academia where they wouldn't even talk about these kind of things mm -hmm. or even give credit yeah. to them. Now, if I may address the book that you held up, because I assume that you, you were, we were heading somewhere else as well with this, because I, I get a lot of things about, I, I mean, it's interesting because you can easily find now people who think that, that Manley Hall was a reptilian overlord elite right. kind of new world order type. And unfortunately he did use the terminology. In fact, I have a, a lecture just if I have, there's only a handful of the lectures that I gave substituting him that are, are still in this world, but I have recordings of some of them that will be made available at some point. And uh, one of them is called marriage in the new world order. And when my engineer told me about, it, I said, did I pick that name or did he? <laughs> and he said, oh, that, that's Manly Halls. And I said, okay, good. <laughs> I can explain that then. But people see that and they think, well, look, he's clearly an Illuminati. I mean, he's using the terminology. He's talking about uniting the world into a new world order. He's, he, he was involved with Ronald Reagan. He was 
you know, he had an exceptionalist viewpoint of America, telling stories about how America's destiny was unlike any other nation and how there was this angelic intervention, even perhaps, or initiate intervention in the signing of the, uh, the Constitution. And it's very difficult to explain to people who, who have this vocabulary that he meant entirely different things by this. So when he was talking about new world order, he was not envisioning some sort of, of dominating elite or autocracy. He was talking about the same thing that Francis Bacon and that the Rosicrucians were talking about and that they wanted their dream at that time, a very short lived dream was they, they understood that they had this emperor in Prague, Rudolf, who loved alchemy. He loved metaphysics and magic and, and encouraged everybody of, into that stuff during that time. He had John Dee at his court. He had Edward Kelly at his court. He had Michael Meyer at his court. He had many of the famous names from that era were, were practicing in his court. And there's no question that Andre and his friends and those who created the manifestos noticed this and, and thought, if only we could convince him to rise up with us and declare a new scientific kind of, of world. And we could break the power of the Pope and we could introduce this much better world to live in where, where there is a more rational government and where people are, our medicine is based on, on Paracelsus and on nature and where we could revolutionize the world. It's the same dream that everybody's had the utopian dream that we've all had. And they really, I think, do we have a Bacon's New Atlantis without the Rosicrucian manifestos? Possibly. I mean, Campanella did City of the Sun, but but they were such a powerful influence in this idea of creating a more enlightened world. Now, over time, and for good reason, that concept of the New World Order has turned into something very negative. So some people see that all-seeing eye on the cover of my book. And they think that it's a symbol saying this is this is an Illuminati book. When I see the symbol of the all seeing eye or I see Manley Hall's old first journal, the all seeing eye, I know that what he's talking about is what Emerson described when he had a cosmic consciousness experience where he, he said that he felt like he was nothing but just one giant eye that it could view the whole universe. And so defining the words becomes so important, right? And I think that that's one of the problems that we have right now is that the definitions of words are not pinned down. And as Wittgenstein pointed out, they, they run away with you. And so there are many reasons one could look at, at Manley Hall and think, oh, well, he must have been an Illuminati and by New World Order, he meant some kind of a dictatorship and, and, and such. But the truth is that, that he was the furthest from that. He wasn't even interested in politics. I don't never have the impression I wasn't there at the time, obviously, but he didn't care about Ronald Reagan very much. I mean, he he liked to have people come to him for advice. He liked to have powerful friends that helped him accomplish his aims. But I did not have the impression that he had any kind of political agenda. His agenda was to encounter wisdom and beauty and to share it with the world improve people's lives by taking these philosophies that were often couched in difficult vocabularies and syntaxes and and grammar and and turning them into a lecture that a guy could listen to on Sunday and improve his home life and maybe have a better time at work.
Mm. And so I, to me, I think that it's, he did definitely have an exceptionalist view of America. So did his wife. They, they both felt that America was a great experiment and indeed America is the great experiment. And they, they perhaps took it to a level. Did Shakespeare actually write those plays? It was actually Bacon and his wife, Marie thought that, that the actual Shakespeare plays in Bacon's hand were preserved in a grave in under uh, uh, in Williamsburg, Virginia. I think it was Brunton Church, Bruton Church. I think that's it. And she actually went there in the 1940s, I believe, and was digging, trying to prove that there was all this Rosicrucian and Francis Bacon stuff under there that would prove that America was actually planned out and that many things that happened later would be proven to have been planned by Francis Bacon. And she thought that when this revelation reached the world, that people would be changed because they would see what an incredible gift this was, that, that someone had engineered a better future for the world. But just from the way that she would get kind of worked up to almost an hysteria when she talked about it, you could see that there was something going on there other than just purely her exploration of the truth. And so I'm not saying that, that those things couldn't have happened. What I'm saying is, is why did she think that the revelation that Francis Bacon actually did write the Shakespeare plays would suddenly make everybody change and turn America into an egalitarian, socialist, Christian kind of paradise? Well, she's right there with so many others. Uh, centuries worth of writers who've had the same kind of a vision and hope. But my feeling was that, that in Mr. Hall's case, I, I mean, I can really bring it down to this. He told me that his biggest, and this is when we were talking about the Rosicrucians, he said that his biggest regret was that he did not from the first suggest to people that before they followed a spiritual path, that they follow some form of psychological therapy and, and learn about themselves and find out what their issues are. Because he felt after a lifetime of trying to help people who were damaged by their spiritual studies, that, that people would have psychological issues that became terribly amplified by their spiritual practices. And what was he to do with that kind of a situation? You couldn't correct that in a sense, metaphysically, you needed to deal with your issues about your parenthood or, or something that happened to you when you were a child that had made you feel a certain way. And some of those things can be addressed in, in spiritual ways, but only if you, if you know that that's what you're after, but spirituality can be the ultimate in avoidance of those issues. And he saw an awful lot of that. And I, I saw that as his screener. It was a very sobering experience, I must say. Mm. Yeah, you made me pull this book off the shelf, Manly P. Hall's Words to the Wise, a very brief book, but very in informative for people who want to tread this path. I don't know. What are your thoughts on this book? It definitely that's helped me good, early on. Yeah, that's a great suggestion, I think. And that is a reaction to what we're talking about. He, yeah. he did do that many times. He wrote in the journal and other places. He tried to provide that kind of guidance for people to let them know what to watch out for and and how to maybe get out of some of the 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 cul-de-sacs that the people find themselves in when they're they're following these paths 
one of the things that that he taught that always stuck with me the most was he always had people who came to him and would say be my teacher and he never took on students and he would always say to them nature is your teacher your life is your teacher every experience in your life is your spiritual path wow sit with that for a moment folks that is what we all need to hear i love that yeah and i'm I'm curious since we're on the point i do want to say i'm i'm someone who you know has been a student of perennial philosophy and i don't know if we would have as much information about this particular area of human culture without a man like manly p hall so you know i've never been persuaded by those who suggest oh because he was a freemason or awarded a degree in freemasonry that that means you know you shouldn't trust him you know everything that i've read from him touches at a part of me that feels like it's a confirmation of my intuition. And some people might read that as, oh, well, you're biased, but I've always taken that as, you know, whatever's guiding me on my particular spiritual path. That might not be the best for everybody, but it's it's what works for us, it seems. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, I'm glad to hear Manly had that. Now, on that note, though, there were conspiracy theories and authors who Manly surely must have seen or been aware of. What was his thoughts on conspiracy theory if he wasn't interested in politics? Did he spend much time thinking about those kind of things? First, of course, I only knew him for seven years toward the end of his life. So the Manley Hall I knew was perhaps not the same Manley Hall that, that others have written about or that others knew. In my time there, he did not have an interest in conspiracy theories. He felt that even in terms, well, okay, I should, I should take that back because he did have an interest in them, but his interest wasn't political. His conspiracy theories had to do with things like who wrote the Shakespeare plays or finding ciphers or, mm. for instance, he was he had found, and this is a really wonderful, strange little anomaly. It's in the book. He had a copy, a 1660 edition of the Anatomy of Melancholy, a great book, by the way. And he points out that on one page in that book, there's a footnote that says, J-O-H, period, V-A-L, period, Andre, Lord Verulam. Well, the only Lord Verulam up until that time was Francis Bacon. Well, he loved that kind of conspiracy theory. So he would say, now, what does that mean? It sounds like Johann Valentin Andre, the potential founder of Rosicrucianism, may have been connected deeply to Francis Bacon, or maybe even was in some way Francis Bacon. That kind of speculation, he loved that stuff. But at the same time, he also had had understood that for most people, these kinds of theories can lead to an avoidance of the lessons of life that, that need to be learned. So he knew very many people who were very learned and erudite, but whose personal lives were a mess. And one of the things that I noticed working for him was, and even to a degree in his case, was how many of these spiritual masters and these great lecturers had terrible marriages. And it always struck me, what is the story there? I mean, how can you be so intelligent, so elevated, so aware, but your marriage is is a disaster? His was interesting. She was a difficult woman. She was very passionate. They definitely loved each other. 
he's she's been accused of manipulating him and of exploiting him and to some degree that's how she functioned she wanted her beliefs to get out there she thought that they had the potential to create great change in the world and her her philosophy was fascinating actually it was a, a great combination of gnosticism and greek mythology and and pietism and just, i mean she just grabbed all these things to illustrate what she was seeing in her vision of the universe and the future but she could be very difficult she she could really i mean she'd been compared to, to socrates's wife and i remember one time i was studying her work with her at his request and she she wanted him to lecture about it and to get out there and tell his followers about her philosophy and what she had discovered and he agreed to do it and i sat next to her i was on one side of her and my wife on the other throughout the lecture and she she sat there the whole lecture going oh she had a german accent she was like oh manly oh no no oh ah because he got it all wrong so there he had a, he had a she'd make him cry sometimes because she was so cruel but on the other hand you could tell i've never seen two people in their 80s so in love so lit up in each other's presence talking with such passion about the future of the world and about esoteric matters and about what exactly what era that bodhisattva statue came from and it was really great it changed my whole view of what it might be like to be old because they were so passionate and and in love with life but having seen this this i think he understood it that if you spend too much time focusing on any kind of of theory like this so it doesn't have to be political it doesn't have to be reptilians it doesn't have to be did bacon write the plays it becomes a way of avoiding your real life and your real life lessons and i think that i've i saw many times people who would dive deep into these things and and define themselves around them and that something would happen they would lose someone they loved dearly they would experience something that tore open for them the angst the existential angst of existence which aristotle famously described the the angst of the soul in the body as being like the etruscan pirate torture of tying a captive face to face with a corpse and so we we live with this kind of of submerged angst of of a in the secret of the golden flower in the chinese alchemical tradition they say that that the soul metaphorically divides and that the lower soul living in the body hates life and wants death because it's claustrophobic it wants out of the body it's afraid of the world it feels that it will perish with the body while the higher soul if it can come to waken while one is in a body loves life because it sees what an amazing miracle this is an opportunity to experience and learn and and do things and experiment with a living creation and so instead of being afraid one has enthusiasm for life and so i think that that he understood over the years and that's why you'll see his work change from being much more intellectual right in the early days he's very occult He's, he's even got the occult outline and he, he's writing a lot there in fact there were there were secret lectures that were kept under lock and key at prs from classes that he gave when he was teaching occultism and he got deeply into it but as you as you go further into his work he becomes more somebody who's just trying to help people live better lives who's trying to show them things about the world that can inspire them 
and he he seems to understand that that the lessons of the heart are as important as the lessons of the mind. So there's no doubt that the kind of work that you are doing, for example, is extremely important because these this kind of work redefines how we see the world. I felt when I was writing my book like I was rescuing people from the, the ocean of forgetfulness. That that I find these characters and think, my God, how could this person not be in mainstream American history? Right, right. And I know we we have so many characters in this book. I, I as fascinated as I am with Manly, I, I do wanna to begin to talk more about some of the characters. But on that note, were there any folks that you came across? in your research that reminded you of Manly? You know, history repeats itself. Were there any great chroniclers like him that came maybe in the, the earlier history of America? I mean, he was born in Canada, correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah so I think 1901. Wow. Not exactly. Although, yes, there is a history in America of these polymaths, of, of people writing book after book on a, a plethora of subjects, but not to the degree that he did. I think that, that the comprehensiveness of his work, even down to the, the fact that he, he was one of the first to write about Shingon Buddhism in, in English. And so he, he really had a, a breadth there that in some ways is comparable to Blavatsky. And Blavatsky was a huge influence on him, undoubtedly. His grandmother was a big Blavatsky supporter, fan, and and he grew up as a kid with a lot of theosophical ideas. And and he even did a, a bust, a sculpture of, of Blavatsky in his youth, I think when he was studying with Claire Pierpont or her teacher. And I think that that he, however, is unique because he is as comfortable with the East as he is with the West. And he's not, unlike Blavatsky, who does have an agenda, he doesn't. He's not trying to tell you that the, the West is better or the East, like the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor was always, we don't like the Theosophical Society. We don't like all this Eastern stuff. It's going to ruin the Western tradition. And of course, today, people are arguing that as well. But he wouldn't do that. He would say the East is wonderful. The West is wonderful. Why not know them both? Why not be able to compare and contrast and, and benefit from all this wisdom? It's all your heritage to enjoy. So and I think he is rather unique. Well, and but maybe G.R.S. Mead, but he's not American, he's British. But G.R.S. Mead of uh, the Theosophical Society had a similar breadth of knowledge. Okay. I had never heard of him. And in your introductory chapters, you do make the point that America became this sort of melting ground of East and Western philosophies in a way. I mean, you see that, especially in the the last chapter, you talk about Washington, D.C.'s architecture, although I haven't made it that far in the book yet, I imagine you may think of feng shui when you look at something like that and the way that the you know Chinese have mastered certain aspects of we'll call it geomancy or or landscape mm -hmm. magic right it seems like washington dc had parallels to that if if they were you know maybe unaware of feng shui who knows <laughs> i think that the well that's a whole other subject the dc thing is interesting that that is is uh, so much of the book actually and this is also true of the rosicrucians and it's also true of the the whole orphic tradition they they seem to be almost like Zen cones in that the deeper you get into these subjects, the less certain anything is. And 
as one of the, the academics once said about Orphic studies, it's like Penelope. You weave all day and then at night you have to unweave everything. And I expect that I will be embarrassed by a good deal of my book <laughs> over the years because I hope that the research will will prove it will go so much further that we will see even deeper, more deeply into some of these things. I try to present the point of view that let's entertain all of it. We don't have to to critique it. We don't have to judge which is going to be the right one. Let's look at all of it and and hold all of this in a sense of of understanding that we don't know, but that we are learning. And so that way we don't have to be defensive about forms of knowledge that may not fit into whatever we're favoring at the moment. Yeah. I agree with that. I, I think that it's very important to to learn anything to move into it with that flexibility, you know, like water, as Bruce Lee says, you know, mm-hmm. that's kind of how I've applied it. But uh, on the point of you know, American history and strange figures, there's a, a guy I learned about in your book as I was reading last night. I don't think he, he came before Manly P. Hall. Maybe he did. But Mr. Forlong, who wrote a the rivers of life and I, I found it online this uh, really amazing chart that he created of you know all of what he thought were the influences of modern religions of his time and tracing them back to as far back as he could comprehend and uh, yeah it, it did feel kind of uh, in the same breath as as mead or hall you know, trying to tackle this huge subject. And you write about how, you know, this kind of uh, imagination was an American thing, you know, like the ability to, to, to comprehend that or even be interested in that was something that only an American at that time may, <laughs> may have embarked on. It's interesting to me that Blavatsky, who was originally from Ukraine, that she, she wrote Isis Unveiled here, and Isis Unveiled is one of these attempts to pull all these different things together. I think that that I mean, one, one of my perspectives in the book is that there is a tradition of people like Godfrey Higgins, who wrote Anacalypsis, Furlong, who I must say, there's some racial issues, racist issues around his writing, but, but I wasn't aware. The chart is amazing. Mm. The, there is a kind of Obviously, academia and people interested in spirituality have dismissed most of these people because their their conclusions were wrong in many cases. So, for instance, Godfrey Higgins thought that the the Druids were Buddhists and had actually come many, many years ago from the East. And so he thought that, that there was a strong influence of the Druids on Jesus. And therefore, there would be a strong Eastern influence. Well, a lot of what he was talking about was based on faulty ideas and bad research and wasn't true. On the other hand, this incredible, these two tomes, these massive books filled with all this information are masterpieces of human imagination. And and in trying to create sort of this united vision of what the truth is, he may have failed to do so, but he did create this monumental work that's filled with all kinds of interesting facts. And it's up to us to, in a sense, discriminate between 
his his intent to convince us of some greater perception of history that he had and instead to admire all that he preserved for us so that we would be able to encounter these ideas and this writing from people that otherwise would have been lost and that that aspect of mr hall's work i think is is within the tradition of writers going back to england and germany as well and france as well where you have Edward Shore based his work on Fabre de Olivet, I think that was his name, who's a fascinating scholar. Again, not really great, not accurate. So, for instance, he did a book about, he considered it his, his, the real Hebrew. I think he called the Hebrew language restored or something like that. Well, he wasn't right, but the theories were fascinating, especially if you're interested in that era of occultism. And, and his other books, he even did a whole alternate history, which Shore based his the great initiates on in which he looked back at people like Moses and I believe Ankenaten and and he redefined them completely. He, he said that, well, in reality, these are all metaphors. It's not unlike uh, the work of Graves and the White Goddess, where he he takes myth and he says, well, these are this is a language that's telling you about history or it's telling you about practical matters. It's not to be taken literally. And so these writers who who have in their effort to find out the truth of the world and, and gathered all these materials together did inspire people. So so, for instance, Higgins was an influence on Borges and and that famous story of his about Akbar is based partly on Higgins and on the Rosicrucians and the idea Borges's observation, let's say that you create this manifesto, this Rosicrucian manifesto, which very well may have been a, a hoax, a, a college kid doing this kind of radical piece of literature to hopefully spark people, but instead he caused a panic. It reminds me in some ways of the beats when I look at that, that group of people at that time and what the effect was. And so looking at, at, the, at these periods of, of trying to wake people up and break the hold of old traditional viewpoints, I think that these alternative views are, are invaluable. So Borges saw that the manifestos went out into the world and they changed the world. So he wrote a story about how scientists found one volume of an encyclopedia and the world became so obsessed with it that they recreated all the other volumes from that one and the world turned into the world described in that first book. And no one was sure if it was really a relic or if somebody had deliberately done this who was modern. He, this inspired a great piece of literature, in other words. And there's many other. Guy de Borges' work was, was influenced by the Rosicrucians. He saw the panic in Paris, the history of the, the Rosicrucian panic in Paris, when I think some smartass probably put up posters saying, hey, we're here. When we're invisible and you just have to mention that you want to be a member and if you're qualified, you know, we'll come look you up. Mm. Well, it caused a panic in Paris. People thought that the devil had come to town. And so I think that de Borges saw this and he thought, oh, that's great. And so in the 1960s, in the situationist movement, they would use these controversial posters to cause student riots, really, at some point. And he was thinking of, to some degree about the Rosicrucians, even though he was a Marxist and he wasn't influenced by the same kinds of ideas as they were. But he did think that, that this idea of using 
these startling statements. So he would say things like everywhere, the everywhere in the world, the young are offered love or refrigerators and everywhere they choose refrigerators. That was a radical statement in 1960s France, right? So I love seeing how these things feed out in these unexpected ways, inspiring others and creating whole social movements unexpectedly. And from that point of view, I think that whether things are accurate or not, they can still serve to to benefit humanity and to evolve society. In the same vein, I discuss in the book how there are very fraudulent people in that book, but they may have something very wise to say. Hmm. And so in our society, we have a tendency to look at people and say, well, they do not live up to what I expect. So therefore, everything they say is illegitimate. But in writing this book, I realized that there were some people who had wonderful things to say and who were unquestionably criminals. <laughs> but that didn't mean that they didn't have some kind of wisdom as well. Right. Well, and so that, that's something it's difficult to, to wrap your head around that. And, and uh, in our culture, I think. Yeah. Well, and, and we see it with your own story, as you mentioned, being a rebellious teenager. And I shared a streak of shoplifting myself when I was a, a rebellious young teenager. Never got caught for it, but definitely repented in my own karmic ways. And uh, and yeah, it's interesting. Thomas Morton is kind of in that vein where he seems like a friend of the natives. Then you also find out, you know, he, he shared a lot of rum with them. Then he you point out the fact that, well, he wouldn't have been able to trade with them at all if he didn't have rum. So his mm -hmm. kind of hands were tied on that matter. And uh, as much as he maybe was a friend to the natives and, and a, a, a pariah to the Puritans, it really didn't help him later in life becoming, as you described him, or as he's described Lazarus, I think he described yeah. himself that way after did, his yeah. voyage across the Atlantic, probably his seventh or eighth voyage at that point, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and yeah, withered away. But it, you know, that moment, you know. Isn't it amazing that he was 50 years old when he's, he's there founding Maramont and, and, I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. And his life in that time period, in his age, you know, becoming this sort of, as he liked to call himself, a sachem amongst the, the natives, you know, and giving them a fair shot at, at being, you know, at least not being totally wiped out. I see that as a, a precursor event to the, you know... Pequot War, which really should be mm -hmm. called, you know, the first Indian War. I think some books do call it that. And yeah, again, history repeats itself because then a hundred years later, we see all this revolutionary action going on. hundred years after that, you know, the Civil War is sort of brewing and about to unfold. So yeah, it certainly feels like when you look into history, you know, to, to parrot what you said earlier, the more you, you know, the less you know, right? Like that Zen way mm -hmm. of, of going about it. But what we do know about the Rosicrucians is that they made their way into Pennsylvania in Penn's Holy Experiment. And I actually had the privilege of going down to Philadelphia. My girlfriend and I, we, we went down to Philadelphia and got a tour of Wissahickon Creek where Johannes mm -hmm. Kepler had his... Wow hermit's cave right and there's a, wow. a stone you know kind of marking the entrance to his cave and a gentleman named ross ben who's been on several podcasts 
not mine yet. He he gave us a tour and it was fantastic. It really was amazing to feel the energy of that place. And uh, mm-hmm. he told us about the Ephrata cloister and, and you know, the, the atmosphere of Pennsylvania at that time was unlike anything England, you know, the Europe, Europe had ever seen. So I imagine a lot of those folks who were panicked and or dealing with the panic felt like they could escape to Pennsylvania at that time and practice with relative safety, right? I think so. But safety was it was a relative term for them because <laughs> right. they were they were looking for the end of the world. They, they had those telescopes up up on that tower. And it's so idyllic. You're thinking, wow. I mean, just imagine being able to look through an early te- telescope at that time. No light to get in the way of the stars. I mean, just the right time to be doing that. But they were up there looking for signs in the heavens of the end of the world. And so much of people forget that the Rosicrucians, although they were I mean, I don't know. This is still something. My mind is changing on this, but the the general opinion has been that the Rosicrucians were believers in the imminent end of the world. But there are some things that Andre said, and and there are some things in the manifestos that seem to indicate that that was more metaphorical, that what they really meant by end of the world was the end of the Pope's world, Mm. the end of the old Catholic Holy Roman Empire. Well, and, and at the time, that idea, whether Rosicrucian or not, was certainly around. The Puritans were obsessed with the end of days. They they lived mm-hmm. their life by that. And a lot of what my research into New Haven has shown me is that the early settlers of the New Haven colony were this persuasion of Calvinists that de- definitely believed that they were living in the end times, or at least, you know, uh, lived their lives that way. I mean, yeah, I'm sure any sign from the heavens, like a meteor... Mm-hmm. Was it Thomas Morton the first person to see Halley's Comet, or was that someone else in, in your book that you mentioned? Because I imagine a comet or a meteor at that time would have inspired all sorts of theories. Hmm. Who was that? I could look at it. I don't it. think it was. It was definitely not him. It might have been Harriet. Okay. Hmm. I'm not sure, though. You know, Harriet was experimenting. He was the first person to build a telescope in England. Oh, Okay. Yeah, that makes more sense. He was also the first person to map out the the moon, what, what could be seen of it. Wow. He actually, not not recognized by historians until very recently for that. Huh. Yeah, I, I might find this in here, but uh, either way, yeah, it, it was. It's certainly, you know, one of these misconceptions to think that oh, these sorts of ideas and philosophies wouldn't have been available to the very strict and pious Puritans. and But most Protestant households, as you said, as the colonies sort of got a foothold, they accepted alchemy. They thought of it as a sort of medicinal benefit or a way of understanding nature and, and, and even a way to be a better Christian. Yes. Well, they thought that they believed that everything had a soul. Mm. So, they were working with God to evolve the soul of lead to gold, for example. Mm. And in order to do so, one had to purify one's own, your own soul. You had to, only the purest alchemist would be able to accomplish that kind of a task. So it was a religious path, a spiritual path, essentially, for, for some of them. I mean, I think that you're dealing with, when you're dealing with someone like Edward Kelly, for example, his goals are probably different. But there was no question that there were there were alchemists who were pursuing this. I'm trying to remember the name. Arndt, I believe, was his name. He was a friend of Andres. 
who actually said that Andre had confessed to him that he was one of those involved in creating what was known as Rosicrucianism. And Arndt was, they call him the father of pietism, even though he was an alchemist and an astrologer. But he did do writing that was foundational for the pietist movement. And so he was an influence on what eventually happened in Pennsylvania. Um, so the it's just it's 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 so funny because things change so slowly and yet rapidly as we study these things so for example when i did my book which is it's about rosicrucianism rosicrucian origins in context i was basing it on the latest research it was still somewhat within the range of francis yates's vision of how these things occurred Although I definitely took to heart some of what Dixon was saying about how she perhaps had seen too much Neoplatonism and Hermeticism where it wasn't among some of these people. But then a book came out by Nadine Ackerman, which I've been waiting for for a long time. She spent 20 years writing it. It's about Elizabeth Stuart, Queen of Bohemia, the Winter Queen. And it completely changes the, the whole viewpoint of all these things, even though she never mentions the word Rosicrucian. But her, her portrait of Frederick, and most importantly, who Elizabeth was and what her role was in, in the whole debacle of Bohemia has changed so radically because of this book. And one of the things that's most uh, enlightening about it is that Ackerman points out the reason for this. Generations of historians didn't think that a woman's letters or papers were important enough to be studied. The truth was that Elizabeth was extremely intelligent, very much involved in the political politics of the day. She used ciphers in her mail. She, she was an incredible woman. And most of what we've been told about her and about Frederick is simply wrong. It was stories that were propaganda picked up by early authors and then uncritically repeated by author after author after author. And suddenly, here's the study based on the actual letters and surviving papers, and it completely changes our viewpoint. So I'll give you one small example of that. We've been taught to think of, there's actually a story that, that when Frederick was getting ready to decide about taking the throne of Bohemia, that his mother told him that he shouldn't. And she was very sane about it. She said she didn't think James would support Elizabeth, the German princes probably wouldn't support Frederick. All it would do was get him in trouble with the Holy Roman Empire, and he shouldn't do it. And as the story goes, he was agreeing with his mother, and then Elizabeth stood up, and she said, ridiculous, this is a calling from God. We have to go help those people. You can't turn it down. And that her stirring speech convinced him to do this, and therefore this led to this horrible disaster. Not true. She said that she wouldn't give her opinion because it was his decision. That's a big difference right there. There was no stirring speech that convinced him to go to Bohemia and take the ill-fated throne. He made the decision, but yet they demonized Elizabeth as this crazy English girl who, you know, she wore her neckline too low and it was a scandal, which is true by the way, but, but the other things were not. So that's just one little, now imagine, when we're looking at the Rosicrucian matters, for example, let alone in early Pennsylvania, where we have so few records, we have only for one historian's new research to come out to change the whole story. 
We don't know who's out there right now. You are potentially working on something right now that will completely change the whole story. I find that very exciting. It's it's one of the things that kept me going on this. And when I saw this avalanche of, of new research coming from academia, uh, so much of it, things that I just thought, oh, wow. I mean, what would I have given to be able to walk into Manley Hall's office with this? <laughs> Look, you know, they actually found the original and here's a translation, that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, I just, I wanted to share it with people because it seemed to me that the, the tragedy here was that here are all these academics laboring away in the areas that we're all fascinated with and no one knows because their books cost $150 to buy. No one ever hears about their books. And in some cases, their books are very hard to read because they're very academic. So I wanted to take all that research and bring it to people like us. So we who have been studying these materials so we could benefit from all this new vision. And one of the most wonderful things about it, by the way, was that I've been warned by people, you are going to have a hard time because academia does not like guys like you. They're not going to, they're not going to like amateurs sniffing around. I had the opposite experience. I, I had the most wonderful support from academics. I mean, not, it wasn't a single person who turned me down. Everybody that I, I would talk to to clarify things or to ask for more research or access Everybody helped me. Everybody, they, they helped me beyond what I asked. People gave me, they shared stuff with me about their own experiences. I think that's wonderful. And I hope that that's the beginning of something. I hope that there's an, a more open spirit now and a more, that more communication can be established between people who are enthusiasts, but don't have the benefit of going to get PhDs and access to these libraries of information. And those who do have the access, but are frustrated because what they're working on seems unimportant in, to the people in their world. While there are people like us who are thrilled when we get to see what they've discovered. Mm. So that was really my intent there in, in creating the book more than anything was, was to, to having seen this this new research and how it changed the whole picture of America, I think, in a way, to put it all together in a place. And I couldn't include everything. I mean, that's one of the things that's rough about it is that there are people I had to leave out. I run into people even now where I wish I could include them. But my publisher, 600 pages, you know, it's it's that's enough. And then we, we try to choose wisely. But there's so much out there. I just keep thinking there's room for everybody. There's room for so many more books. There's so much more research to be done. And as I said, I'm hoping that people come and they make my book dated, but they, they find even more exciting things. Wow. It's so reassuring to hear that. And it's even more reassuring to hear your, your humility. Cause this is such a great book that I, I would well, be, uh, yeah, I would be surprised to see that happen in my lifetime. This is really great. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. And I would, correct myself on what I said earlier. You're right. He he did not see Halley's Comet. Kepler did. I'm sure many people saw Halley's Comet, but that inspired our friend Harriot to buy a telescope. And then he was one of the first Americans alongside of Galileo, who I believe saw the moons of Jupiter first. He was mm -hmm. one of the first Americans to see the, the moons of Jupiter. So I guess that was where I was pulling at. I was trying to kind of tangent our way into your comments on the uh well it's kind of interesting there's a few different people i've looked into in my research into yale and there's a group of people that were known as 
I think the seven sisters or the seven or, or something having to do with the Pleiadians and they were poets. And when you mentioned this in your chapter, Intelligencers and the fifth moon of Jupiter, I started to think maybe there was a connection between these groups. I'm forgetting the exact specific link now, but maybe we can get into what was going on with John Winthrop the Younger, who was inspired by John Dee, and how he was one of the founders of the Royal Society. Because the Royal Society, in some ways, they, they take on the sort of Thomas Harriot role of cataloging the New World. And in other ways, John Winthrop the Younger kind of uses his role as governor of the Connecticut colony to keep England at bay so that the Connecticut colony can be independent. A lot of our history as a nation is wrapped up in Connecticut as the Constitution state. Our charter made you know, the, the Constitution of the United States possible in some ways. If it wasn't for John Winthrop the Younger's work, we may not have stowed away the charter in our Charter Oak when the Dominion of New England came along to steal it away from us. And if that had happened, who knows? We might still be living under the thumb of England. Uh, some might argue we still are. Nonetheless, I think anyone who loves America as much as I do would be thrilled to, to find out that, you know, an alchemist helped inspire our constitution in some way, or at least led to our, our nation's independence. Well, John Winthrop the Younger was trained by members of the Royal Society when he came out to America to report back to them facts about the indigenous people, about local flora and fauna that he could find, as well as resources that might be exploitable. I found it interesting that going back to Harriot, that that he was exchanging books with John Dee. They were both friends with Henry Percy, the, the wizard earl, they used to call him, who was a great friend of Sir Walter Raleigh. And I thought it was so interesting that that here was, this is a little off subject, but I think you'll enjoy it, that here is John Dee who is pursuing the angelic language and who is working poor Edward Kelly to death, trying to get this communication going with the angels. And, and he is firmly believing that it's possible that Edward Kelly is getting messages from the angels. And this, of course, turns into the notorious angelic wife swap, right? Where everybody points out maybe D wasn't all that smart if he was manipulated into this by Kelly signing over half of his possessions and doing this, this, we share our wives thing. Now, interesting point of view on that. Even that is not clear because it sure sounds like they, that might be the case. I mean, Edward Kelly got a lot of money for that. Edward Kelly supposedly didn't really much care for his wife. Maybe there was some kind of gain there, but more recently there have been academic perspectives on this that suggest that, that really Kelly was trying to get out of doing the angelic readings, which were too exhausting and were affecting his sense of reality. And that he came up with this wife swap idea to try to convince Dee to knock it off. And that since Dee at first was saying, no, I don't like this idea, but let's keep doing this. He just kept saying, no, they want the wife swap. No, they want the wife swap and wouldn't give him anything else. And sure enough, the wife swap, which was a disaster pretty much for everybody involved, 
but it did do what what uh, Kelly may have been trying to do, which is stop the the sessions. Hmm. Now, here's Harriot, who is sharing books with D. He's hanging out with with their their mutual friend, the the Wizard Earl, and they're they're all swapping books and they're all talking about these issues. And there's this one document that it may not be Harriot, but I believe that it is. It came up for auction not too long ago. And it was some personal notes. And one of the things that was said in it, and this sounds like Harriot to me, and I, it's one of those moments that I just love about these things. So here is John D. chasing after speaking to the angels. And here's his friend Harriot, who he shares books with, writing privately. I don't believe we could talk to angels. We don't have the senses for it. These are grand beings. I mean, how could we even have anything to do with them? It's like expecting an ant to talk to a human being. Right. I, I somehow that just charmed me about him that he he was seeing the world that way, and you can see the difference between D, who is such a Renaissance man, such a, a almost a medieval man, and here is Harriot, who is a modern man in a sense. He's figuring out ways to improve plumbing. He's taking long lists of all the good things to eat in in the new world. He's inventing a better way to navigate for English shipping. He's and he's looking at, at his friend's angelic communication saying, that doesn't make sense to me. Mm. We, we do not have the senses for that. Well, and I so, know that you, you use the term evil genius, but evil is in quotations. And I didn't point that out earlier, but it is important, I think, now that you're how you're describing Harriot, because, you know, we have to keep in mind how a man's work can be taken out of his hands and, you know, used by others for maybe ways that, that he didn't intend originally. So, was, Well, it refers, the title, although you're right, I mean, you it is partially winking at you know, the evil of his exploitation in that book mm -hmm. and how he viewed America in a sense as something that was just there to be taken. But it's also referring to, unfortunately, to the end of his life where... He invented an alphabet, for example, because he wanted to record the language of the indigenous people. And he found there were words or rather sounds that didn't really conform to English very well. So he invented an alphabet and he actually created a whole vocabulary that went with it. Unfortunately, the vocabulary was lost at sea, but the, the actual alphabet survived and it be, was nicknamed the devil's alphabet by people who didn't understand it. Mm. And late in his life, when King James was going after Walter Raleigh, Thomas Harriot was, was also a target. And there were dinner parties that Raleigh had had where they said things about the Bible or that they didn't believe in, in the resurrection of the body that didn't make sense. Or Raleigh was supposedly said, I'm not impressed by... Uh, Moses, you know, look at, or Jesus, look what Thomas Harriot can do. Now to us, this sounds normal, but, but then this was treason. This was, was heresy. And, and in fact, Raleigh was killed and executed. And Harriot became known as, because of all this, because of these trials as, as someone who was very evil. So he was, he was considered a Satanist by the English who, who demonized him at the time. And this was toward the end of, of his life. And so I found it very ironic. I mean, it's not that unusual. It's the demonization of science, which was very common. And yet he is such a brilliant example of it. Here's a guy who 
really did things that, that were pretty remarkable in terms of science and engineering. And, and he is condemned for it. His, his alphabet that he created that was supposed to be a universal language that could finally unite everybody was instead named the devil's alphabet. And you can still find it in not so good books about witchcraft or Satanism, where they're, they're actually presenting it as a satanic alphabet. But he was trying to capture indigenous American language. Right, right. And this is something you notice if you're, I mean, I'm not sure if you've ever visited, maybe you have, but when you're you're stumbling around New England like I have, you find all of these places named Devil's This, Devil's Rock, Devil's Hop Yard even. And it's really the result of this sort of logic that told the Puritans or the English, maybe sometimes even the Dutch, that the... Native American sacred sites or ceremonial areas were inherently satanic because those people didn't believe in in God. And now it makes for some pretty interesting place names. But, you know, I've gone to some of those places and, and there still is a palpable energy, a potency in the landscape. And I really like what you had to say earlier about the beginning of our conversation about this sort of influence seeping through. I've often thought of that through my own experiences, how the land carries the culture that was imprinted upon it for thousands of years. And that may supersede, you know, what's been sort of supplanted on it over the past 400, 500 years. Maybe in the next 200 years, we'll see things go back towards a, a more symbiotic relationship with nature, hopefully. I, I would hope so. And you do see in history a pattern whereby the religion of the, the conquered becomes the religion of the conqueror. We see this in the Aryan invasion of India, mm. where eventually the Aryans adopt the, the spiritual practices that were indigenous there. We see it in Rome, the conquest of Greece, and then, then the way the Greek philosophy and literature became the dominant forces in, in Roman literature. And I, I could see that happening because the indigenous way of life is, is what we require now, is what, how we need to treat nature at this point. So there's so much to learn. And this was something that, that I found that the Standing Rock, this deserves its, its own conversation. But one of the things that people may not know about that is, is how much spiritual activity was going on there. That when I spoke to people who experienced it, from all walks of life, I kept hearing the same thing, which was the veil was thinner there than I've ever felt it before. For instance, the director of the film that I mentioned earlier, End of the Line, she decided to go there because she had a dream in which a friend of hers, the late Russell Means, who had recently died then, he came to her in the dream and basically said, what are you waiting for? Go. And when she was there, she met all these other people who were there because they dreamt of Russell telling them, go. Just a couple of the stories, but there are many stories like this, there are telepathic moments when people desperately needed something and then somebody showed up with it. And everybody who was there came back reporting how different it was from any other experience they'd ever had and how they went there to be political, but the experience became spiritual. Right. So I think that, that there's a, I do think, and in fact, my book owes an awful lot to a wonderful book that I highly recommend to everybody by Catherine Albanese, 
called A Republic of Mind and Spirit, which is the bedrock study of American metaphysical religion in academia. It's a wonderful book. And she just released a new book the same month, which I think is, I haven't read it yet, but I, I can't wait to, which is I don't remember the name. I think it's called Anglo-American Metaphysical Religion and the Pursuit of Happiness, something like that. But she examines how in America, a, a completely new approach to religion, in a sense, has been born. And what that is, is the idea that, that, that we love nature, that nature teaches us that we want to be in, we want to be happy. It isn't that this is a veil of suffering and we're all in sin and we should be living in fear of damnation because that's where we're going, which after all is a big sec section of the, the European history of Christianity. It's, it's about suffering. Here, it's about happiness. It's about nature wants you to be happy. Find the right balance and you will have your abundance, those kind of thoughts. And so I'm, I'm anxious to read her book, but even in academia, they're tangling. I, my feeling just from the title and what I've read about the book is that she's trying to present a foundation for a new way forward in viewing what may be a new American religion that's evolving. My book kind of looks at that, glances at that idea, but I, I don't want to come out against it or for it because it's way too early in the process. But it does seem like something is boiling up here. and. I was struck by how the so many of us are doing similar things, even though we may not be doing them in the exact same ways or from the same cultural originations. And, and we don't think of ourselves as anything but these separate little pods of, of idiosyncratic fringe activity. But the truth is, if you look at the heart of what we're doing and you look at all of us, we're bigger than the Methodist religion. We're, we're huge. I mean, I mean the, the metaphysical community in America is, is really a dominant big community that has strongly influenced everyone. And yet we've been brainwashed in a way into believing that there is no such thing, that we're just on our own. There's some you know crazy young girls who think they're witches over there and there's tarot readers over here. And, but very likely, maybe we're part of something. And it's something that goes back far before America, obviously. But it, as the book points out, consider, for example, that we mentioned the Platonist early in this talk. And Thomas Johnson, the editor of the Platonist, went looking for tarot cards at the end of the 19th century. And he couldn't find a deck in the United States. Then in the early 1960s, Mary Kay Greer, a great author, wrote many books about the tarot and also wrote a wonderful book about the women of the golden dawn in 19 in the 1960s she couldn't find a tarot deck in her college town in florida and had to drive way across town to the little store that that had some little deck that had finally been published by somebody and today there are so many tarot decks that when i i got in touch with adam mclean who's one of the foremost collectors in the world of tarot decks and also a great publisher of of rare alchemical things he said that he didn't know how many there are anymore. He'd lost track. There were so many thousands. Wow. So the world is changing. And if we can see that instead of, I see, for example, how let's use the tarot community as an example, how there can be this splintering off and people will gang up on something and say, oh, I don't like that tarot deck because it's got this problem. But, you know, that tarot deck, 
what if we could see this as this amazing moment of awakening, another American great awakening, but this time, rather than Christianity, it's in the realm of metaphysics. And the only thing lacking is self-awareness at this point that, that people, I think there was a key moment, actually, Marianne Williamson, when she ran for president, made that comment about, uh, I think she called it dark energies or dark forces. I can't remember what it was. And while the media was, of course, criticizing her and ridiculing her, it was a there was a strong reaction in the world to that in America, in the Twitterverse. People who knew exactly what she meant by that. And when I saw that, I thought, wow, there's the first moment that we see just a flicker of of American metaphysical religion in politics, right? Somebody had the guts to talk about this dark energy in politics and millions of people said, yes, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. So I, to answer your question is a long answer, but I do think that we could be evolving something here. And this book is intended, I, I hope, to cultivate at least an interest among people to learn about each other's beliefs and to see each other as allies rather than as members of completely separate groups. And I would love to see, you know, I try to talk to people. I have people who will occasionally tell me, well, you really shouldn't talk to that person because they, they're fascist or, and, and my point of view is they're all part of this thing I'm studying. And, and I, there were, there's always been fascists in America. There have been the silver legion and there's, there's been, there's a history of this stuff in metaphysics. And that's part of it. But why can't I talk to these people? And sometimes things can happen. You know, they may learn something from me and vice versa. And if nothing else, we, we're not stuck in these corners and we're all being demonized by Christianity and Christianity's out there saying we run the show. And they're, they're not even I mean, at this point, they are still angling to take over everything. They're, they still want a, a Christian autocracy in this country and they readily admit it among the Christian dominionists. Now, what is the counterforce of that? Well, good Christians who, who realize that maybe that isn't what Jesus meant, but also, right, all of us. We've been here all along. We have not been given, our forefathers, if you will, have not been given the credit that they deserve for what they brought to this country. Metaphysics has been a hugely important part of it. As you see in the book, I even argue that American Christianity may have more to do with American metaphysical religion than it does with Christianity. Right. Yeah, it's so fascinating when you put it that way. And, and that may shock people listening. And, and I've just ventured into this open-minded and, and, you know, you happen to interview one person and you find out later, oh, well, a lot of people think this about them. I've always come from it at the the same way you describe it where i'm just open to f you know seeing why someone's family thinks they're crazy because mine has thought i was crazy for all this variety i think of that's great i love that approach by the way i thought i think that was just a, a inspired title for your podcast well it hit me like a ton of bricks one day because i told my my family that i quit my delivery driver job at, at, to go along and do this podcast thing and work for this comedian named sam tripoli who you know he might as well be one of these canceled comedians and they're like what are you you know what are you doing and i'm like oh geez my family thinks i'm crazy and and that's where this kind of all came together but i've always had the perspective of well if if somebody has you know something to say 
of value, you can get the best assessment of that from just speaking with them. Because if they're projecting, if they're afraid, if they're insecure, I mean, those are going to be things that come out in their writing, but you're going to get that more directly just by talking to them. And more often than not, I've had amazing conversations like the one that we're currently having where, you know, it's, it's someone very much like myself who's honestly interested in these things and has pursued it for, you know, the greater part of their life and, and, and it's added to their life. I mean, of course, as we described earlier, there are wrong turns people can take on the spiritual path and certain books like The Word to the Wise can help you avoid those as well mm-hmm. as American Metaphysical Religion, this book that we've spent the, the majority of time talking about. But yeah, it's, it's really interesting in this modern day of social identity, politics and cultural this and that, you know, to be interested in things that are controversial can make you controversial. And I think that that's the same instinct that the Puritans had when they were fearful in the wilderness. And and I think, mm-hmm. you know, we need to start to recognize that if it is adding to our psychology and, and remove those sort of instincts and, and be more open-minded. I mean, that's, that's what I've come to learn here. And, and yeah, I, I'm really happy that we had this conversation, Ronnie. This is really fantastic. I know we're coming up to the the top of the the second hour here, and there's so much you've covered in this book that I really would love to have you back on to talk about the Red Harlot and the uh, you know Platinus, who you did mention a little bit. There's so many other people that you touch on in this book. We got. I'm just gonna thumb through it and give people a little taste. Willie Reichel's Psychic Psychic Adventure Tour. I mean, folks, this is a book you must have on your shelf if you're interested in this pod. We've talked about many of the things that have come up in this book on the show before. So yeah, thank you for, for creating this uniquely American compendium of metaphysical religion, much in the way Manly did that for Western and Eastern, you know, history of philosophy. You've done that with metaphysical philosophy and history. So I appreciate that. Thank you. I'm happy to be back on anytime. Right on. I really appreciated this. Right on. It's nice to speak to somebody who who has a similar interest. (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. Well, with that, folks, please do go and check out Ronnie, he's not just an author, folks. He's got a band, Lucid Nation. You can find him on Spotify. Let me ask you before we go, while you were traveling around, gathering all those books, as you said, on tour, were there any American hot spots, any places that really struck you? I mean, there's the there's the big ones that we've probably heard about, but were there any unique places that you hit on your road trips that you know, are uniquely American metaphysic? I would say the place that, that I look forward to most, and there was one time, especially when we were there that I'll share with you, was Bear Butte in South Dakota. Mm. And we were, we were coming back, we'd, we'd gone east and we were coming back west on the tour. And it happened to be the 4th of July. And we didn't know what we were going to do. We didn't just want to stay on the freeway. And we realized we were going to be near Bear Butte. And Bear Butte is where Crazy Horse, whose name really should be Crazy with Courage Horse, he would go up there and meditate. And when you go there, you can see the prairie just stretching out. It's just this round butte. And we figured, oh, what a perfect place to go. 
Well, we didn't realize that like half the Sioux Nation was going to be up there to celebrate. That's where they went for the 4th of July. And we were the only Caucasians there. And we were this band, you know, and Tamara and I wound up being the only ones who had the courage to, to go up there. And we just, all we wanted to do is we just went up on the butte and we tore some hair off and we hung it like a prayer flag because they were, everybody was hanging prayer flags. And I guess they saw us do it. And so they were accepting of us. And as we were walking down, there was a shaman walking in front of us who had collected a bunch of smudge. And I don't know if it was an accident or it was deliberate, but he was dropping smudge behind him. And we were walking behind him, picking the smudge up. And that lasted us for a couple of years. It was great. And and they're just the, they never said anything to us, but just the way that they looked at us and the feeling of it was so wonderful. And being there on the 4th of July with a heavy history of America, especially toward the indigenous people, and feeling what it felt like up there, the, the, the splendor of nature and the tenderness of the people was beautiful. And so we got back on the freeway and started up again. It was nighttime. And these, there were two storms that came together above us. And I've never seen red and green lightning before, that kind of thing, like you can see sometimes out in the wilderness. And we were like, wow, you know, where are we? Where is this? And right when there was this huge, bright flash of lightning, we turned and it said right there, Little Bighorn. And we watched these two storms battling over the Little Bighorn and flashes of lightning as we drove slowly by. That was one of my favorite moments touring. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. We do another podcast titled Esoteric America, where we invite people on the show to share things they've learned about where they live. And I always like to ask those kind of questions because there's so many places in America. People, you know, they think, oh, I'm going to travel. I'm going to go to a city. No, mm -hmm. skip the city. Go on a road trip and, and just get lost and see what you yeah, find. Yeah. See what I can share. Some, I have some of those. So if you, if you ever want to talk about that, we certainly can. Oh, absolutely. Ronnie, I would love to have you back on the show. I will be in touch to do that. Great. So folks tuning in, like I said, Go and check out the book. Is there a best place to buy the book? Do you have a website you'd like to leave people with or any social media? Uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't really. I mean, I'm sure the publisher in her traditions likes, <laughs> likes to be the one that sells it, but it's available all over the place and cool. I don't sell it personally. Cool. After years of being in an indie band, going to the post office with giant boxes of <laughs> records and stuff, I'm just right. kind of over it. Right, right. <laughs> so get the book. I'm sure it will be available at most stores and on Amazon. Inner Traditions is everywhere. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ronnie. And folks listening, thank you for tuning in. Immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are in the now. All right, and that is our interview with Ronnie Pontiac here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and I couldn't be more stoked about this conversation. It went very well. Uh, Ronnie and I hit it off, uh, connected on our common interest of esoteric history, and he is uh, quite the charmed character like myself, you know, ending up working for Manly P. Hall, 
uh, in a sort of demented similar way I ended up working from uh, you know the general masses being plucked out to, to go ahead and work for one of my favorite podcasters Sam Tripoli so you know serendipity reaches everyone in different ways for Ronnie it meant him working alongside Manly P. Hall and wow what a privilege it is to have somebody uh, one degree of separation from a man who's inspired many of us through his writings uh, especially the secret teachings of all ages despite what some people may think of that book uh, depending on your particular religious persuasion i found that book tremendously informative and i don't take it to heart i think it's a great way to get a sort of comprehensive view of esoteric history the stuff that the victors have written out of history and Ronnie has done that in a sort of microcosmic way for American history with this tremendous book. I can't recommend it enough. Go over to innertraditions.com and search up American Metaphysical Religion at uh, about 600 pages. It's a tremendous, tremendous compendium. I'm just going to read some of the chapter titles for you guys. We only talked about Turtle Island, which is chapter 5, Thomas Harriet. America's first evil, in quotation marks, genius. Uh, that's chapter six. The Pagan Pilgrim, chapter seven. And the Intelligencers of the Fifth Moon of Jupiter, chapter eight. Uh, the next chapters are The Red Harlot, The Uncivil War, The Platinus of the Sunset Strip, Secrets of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor, and so much more. Uh, I don't want to give out all of them because you got to go over to the website check it out pick up a copy for yourself and uh yeah maybe read it before i have ronnie on again to get into some of those chapters i just read there uh especially the chapter he mentioned during our conversation today about the platonists so I'm sure there's tons of tons of connections there waiting to be made and yeah i look forward to it if you guys want all of our bonus episodes go over to the patreon sign up now i don't know what happened this past uh, month turnover from january to february we had 111 patreon subscribers and then overnight we had 96 and i said to myself how could i have lost 15 subscribers 15 patreon subscribers and patreon says i only lost one it says only one person deleted their pledge. So uh, please, if you subscribe to the Patreon recently, go and double check. Make sure that that wasn't an accident, that your card doc got declined, or maybe something happened there. So just go and double check. Hopefully we get all of you back on the Patreon soon because we have some really awesome plans this month. Uh, get on the Patreon and find out. We have a mission for anyone who's a part of the Patreon, a special scene mission that Tara and I put together. So we're going to be meeting on February 22nd to discuss uh, the results of our own individual mission. So be sure to sign up now and read up on what you have to do. Be there on the 22nd for the fun. Uh, that's right, patreon.com slash mftic. The link is in the description. And yeah, that is how we uh, keep the show funded. Le recently, 
we've got a considerable bump in download numbers each episode, which means I have to pay more for my uh, podcast hosting per month, which not a big deal. Uh, This comes with the territory, but it helps when we have so many awesome supporters uh, like you listening and so many very kind people on the Patreon. And, you know, honestly, it's not just their kindness. They're actually getting in on a really cool deal that so many people are missing out on. I mean, just by the numbers, only 100 people uh, out of the close to 8,000 people that regularly tune into this show. There's so many bonus episodes on the Patreon, fun events like the scene on the 22nd of this month. Uh, And actually, I really want to recommend people sign up for the Patreon not only to get each episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast early, a week early, this is being recorded on February 2nd, and it'll be available in a few days for free, but it'll be available tonight on the Patreon alongside of a fantastic first in a series of conversations with Native American author and traditionalist Lauren W. Jeffries, who's spoken to me about a number of really fascinating topics including ancient America, something that we kind of brushed up on today at the beginning, although it was more uh, within the scope of the past six or 700 years of history here on this uh, continent. Um, This conversation goes a little further than that. Lauren is privy to information that the Native Americans revere and regard as uh, important and to be protected hence why we're keeping most of the series of conversations with lauren behind the paywall for a limited uh, time so sign up on the patreon now and uh, listen to those conversations download them if you want to because they won't be there forever Uh, and there are at this point eight hours worth of conversation between lauren and i Uh, I'm going to release some of that for free on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast feed. So be sure to check that out. Of course, all of the video conversations, every episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast has a video portion to it. And those go up on YouTube. But first, they go to Rockfin. Uh, And some of them never make their way to YouTube due to the subject matter. But if you want to check out our YouTube channel or our Rockfin channel, Uh, You don't have to subscribe to Rockfin, although I do encourage you to sign up. Uh, We have free videos there. The whole Esoteric America feed is free on Rockfin. It's also available on YouTube. And yeah, we're working on a lot of cool stuff. Maybe we'll have Lauren Jeffries on an episode of Esoteric America at some point. But for now, uh, go and check out his book, The Sacred Count, and uh, tune in on the Patreon to hear those really epic conversations between myself and a Native American elder. Uh, Like I said, privy to some sacred information that is well guarded. And we have uh, the inside scoop here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy Patreon for a limited time, of course. So uh, be sure to check that out as soon as you can. And uh, yeah, as for now, folks, that does it for today's episode. Be sure to check out Ronnie's book and of course help out our sponsors the hit kit hit kit.us you can go there and get 
a custom case that holds not just your lighter, but whatever you're smoking on, whether it's a joint, a blunt, a spliff, you name it, you roll it, put it in your hit kit, and move, groove, puff away, knowing that you are safe from a busted joint, from a flattened blunt, you know? You ever keep a joint in your pocket, and then a few hours later you reach in there and it's like a... You know, you can slide it through a door. It's so thin. Yeah, what are you thinking? Get a hit kit. Keep all your blunts safe and sound. And use the promo code CRAZY to get a discount on your hit kit. That's right. Use a promo code CRAZY. And be sure to tell Garrett that you heard about his product on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. I've been talking about it for months now. How do you not have a hit kit yet? All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in. And immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are in the now. My family thinks I'm crazy. Baby, baby, baby. Maybe, maybe. I'm a little extra terrestrial. Trying to stay human in a cesspool of professionals. But I confess too much off of the tongue. All my aunties and my uncles shield the ears of the young. I be saying shit and they don't know where it's coming from. And like a hundred years, we went saw bomb before guns. Check the facts, check the fed, check the stars Stanley Mines was murked for a water fuel cell car They each they own, you can stick with your own ways But eat the rich, you drink the motherfucking Kool-Aid And I can see the red on your lip stain White skin, blue collar, pure American made Fuck it, you can keep your blood soaked heritage And run the soul off the moon landed narrative Yeah, my girl thinks that I'm embarrassing My folks think I'm nuts, but never question the parenting Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots, but it's all kinda hazy The morning in the net, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pack thinks I'm on American and shady Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an alien It wouldn't phase me My family thinks I'm crazy Think that I'm off in the deep end One too many Netflix docs on the weekends But check the budget for a military defense Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason Steel beams, another 1492 And 9-11 was the red, white, and blue And you be lit off the floor, I ain't got a clue All your dreams just shit on a Rockefeller shoes Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said Ain't one brick left to go up in the Fed They still got bricks of cocaine to make crack Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's whack Talking like this, got kids talking behind backs Too much to unpack, so they talk smack And I'm just trying to converse with my clan But it ain't fan, so I'm here setting up camp Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots, but it's all kinda hazy Good morning in the net, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pack thinks I'm on American and shady Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an alien It wouldn't phase me my family thinks I'm crazy Baby, baby, baby My family thinks I'm crazy Maybe, maybe, maybe Just maybe Stuck in bed so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots but it's all kinda hazy I'm on the internet feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pap thinks I'm on American and shady I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You can tell me that the president's an atheist It wouldn't phase me My family thinks I'm crazy Yeah, I think one thing I've learned is You can't rule anything out, so, you know
Maybe I am.